I made that decision, we'll have this kid underground. That was an emotional decision. You know, I saw the baby born, didn't want to part with her. But when I saw the, uh, the, the dangers unfold, particularly in later years, I realized, like, whoa, you know, we have no backup. We have no network to depend on. You know, we're really vulnerable. And if something happens, both parents are here, you know, it's going to be a really nightmare situation. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. Prisoners in a low-medium facility in Norton, Kansas, rebelled on Tuesday, August 5th. The Public Employees Union tweeted, quote, A huge riot broken out at Norton Correctional Facility. Buildings are burning and some inmates have gotten weapons, unquote. Multiple fires were set and many administrative computers were destroyed. Cops from multiple jurisdictions and the state police were required to suppress the uprising. One guard said, quote, They weren't rioting against each other. They were going against the Department of Corrections. They just wanted to make a statement, unquote. A friend of a prisoner pointed to the poor living situation at Norton, saying, quote, Conditions out there are deplorable. No adequate showers, toilets, or room for that many people, unquote. Closer to home, administrators of the Bartholomew County Jail in Columbus, Indiana, blamed overcrowding for a series of disturbances there. Jail Captain Nicole Kinman was injured on Monday by a prisoner kicking out his cell door. And the days before, prisoners had flooded their cells by clogging showers and toilets, damaging the floors below. This is a common form of protest and sabotage that has also been used by prisoners here in Monroe County. The overcrowding is partially due to changes in sentencing laws that send more prisoners to county jails. In-person contact visits are now legally guaranteed in Illinois prisons, setting a new bar for preserving the rights and dignity of incarcerated people and their families. With the passage of the Protect Prison Visits Bill, video visits will not replace, but rather supplement in-person visiting. The bill also ensures that the cost of video visiting is reasonable and affordable. The bill is the companion to last year's Family Connections Bill, which cut in half the cost of traditional phone calls from prison. The Protect Prison Visits Bill was signed into law by Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner in August and goes into effect on January 1, 2018. Beginning on August 19th, 49 logging trucks were burned in Chile in a sequence of nighttime attacks. These arsons were claimed in solidarity with 10 indigenous prisoners from the Mapuche Nation who are facing charges for sabotage against the logging industry. That industry, organized into large plantations, was granted control over vast tracts of Mapuche land during the Pinochet dictatorship. According to PTLeader.com, 50 people from the Seattle area demonstrated at the GEO Group's Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington, to affirm their support for the immigrants detained there. The Northwest Detention Center, opened in 2004, has a capacity of about 1,500 people. It's one of the largest immigrant prisons in the U.S. and the largest on the West Coast. 
an Immigration and Customs Enforcement official, estimated the average stay at the center is 120 days, but many detainees stay for over a year waiting for immigration judges to consider their cases. A 2008 report by the Seattle University Law School uncovered human rights violations and poor conditions at the center. The report found the facility's legal due process, inadequate medical care, and poor quality food constitute violations of international and domestic law. The report concluded that the totality of these conditions constitutes cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment. Texas officials resisted evacuating prisoners from Houston-area jails and prisons before Hurricane Harvey hit. It took pressure from family members and advocates to force limited evacuations. But some prisoners were less lucky. For example, FCC Beaumont ordered a lockdown, leaving prisoners trapped in their cells as the hurricane raged and waters rose. Houston anarchist Black Cross had this report based on communication with prisoners' family members. They said, FCI Beaumont Lowe went on lockdown from August 27th through September 2nd when incarcerated persons were let out of their cells for about an hour. Many called outside to talk with family and friends about conditions and said some cells were flooded, they were not getting sufficient food or water, medicines were not being distributed, and unsanitary conditions persisted due to the inability to flush toilets. During the chaos, many units remained on lockdown, meaning prisoners were not allowed to access commissary or leave their cells, and in some cases were denied phone access. In a report conducted by Left Voice a week after Harvey hit, a woman whose husband is incarcerated at Beaumont Federal Prison said, quote, They are using the restroom in bags so they can save toilet water. They all have been drinking the toilet water since they've been low on water supply. He said that even though the toilet water has bacteria, at this moment he didn't care and the other prisoners didn't care either. They're really thirsty. He said he would drink anything. He told me if the water didn't kill him, the conditions were going to kill him. That's how bad it is. End quote. As Hurricane Irma bears down on Florida, nearly 100,000 prisoners in the third largest state system in the U.S. face similar nightmare scenarios. As a result, the campaign to fight toxic prisons is suggesting that supporters preemptively call the Florida Department of Corrections main line at 850-488-0420 to demand that they evacuate prisoners in harm's way. Fight Toxic Prisons is also requesting that outside supporters contact the Florida Department of Corrections regarding a participant in last year's September 9th national prison strike, Julius Smith. Fight Toxic Prisons goes into depth on his situation and the ongoing repression across Florida's prisons. They write, As a result of participating in the September 9th work strikes last year, on the anniversary of the Attica Prison Slave Rebellion of 1971, and also in retaliation for organizing around the August 19th Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March in D.C. last month, certain prisoners in Florida are being held in solitary confinement indefinitely under the false pretense of alleged gang activity. Julius Smith is one of these people. Currently at Hamilton CI in Jasper, Florida, Julius has been transferred, lost property, and is sitting in confinement indefinitely for corresponding with activists on the outside. One year ago, Florida prisoners at the Holmes Correctional Institution kicked off the largest coordinated prisoner strike in U.S. history. The September 7th uprising at Holmes was just the beginning in Florida. By September 9th, at least 10 other facilities in Florida and dozens across the country would experience disturbances ranging from minor incidents to major disruptions of prison life. Personal reports from prisoners across the state indicate that what started as a basic day of non-cooperation was escalated by correctional offices into full-scale riots. Prisons around the country experienced similar incidents when refusing to participate in their own slavery by skipping work assignments and meals. 
Some of those same prisoners still sit in solitary confinement or close management units, dispersed across the state, stripped of their belongings and threatened with loss of good time, making some of their already absurd sentences even longer. Almost one year later, surrounding the call for prisoners and their family members to organize around August 19th, the March in Washington, D.C. for Prisoners' Human Rights and an end to the 13th Amendment's legalized slavery, the entire state prison system was put on lockdown for almost a full week. This was meant as a punishment for last September and deterrent from participating in this August's day of action. Now, word from the prisons is that they may also cancel visitations this September 9th weekend and possibly institute another system-wide lockdown to preempt further organization and momentum against the corrupt and brutal prison system in Florida. As frustrating as this has been, both for people on the inside and us on the outside, it is a clear indication that our efforts are being taken seriously and that they are having an impact on the system. This is the definition of strategy. Prison officials have been forced into a situation where they have to weigh the price of overreacting against the cost of underreacting. End quote. On behalf of Julius Smith and other prisoners still facing repression, the Fight Toxic Prisons campaign suggests calling the Hamilton Prison at 386-792-5151. You can press 1 for administration, ask for the duty warden, or leave a message. And telling them that you fear for Julius's safety, given the harassment that he's faced from staff. episode, we continue our conversation with Ray Luke Levasseur. He's a former underground combatant with the United Freedom Front, which carried out a campaign of attacks from 1975 to 1984 against South African apartheid and the U.S. intervention in Central America. He spent 13 years in solitary confinement after his capture. This week, he shares with us his thoughts on the impact of incarceration on families, including his time as a parent, both in clandestinity and in prison. He talks about his own experiences, leading to insights about the larger issues facing many families, as millions of children are deprived of their parents in a society with record high incarceration rates. Here's Ray. When my partner and I were underground, we had three young children. In many ways, I mean, it was a, for the children and as a, and for the, as a family, it was very comfortable, happy time. You know, we went to great lengths to try and keep our children safe and away from any actions that we were involved in. That said, it was like, uh, and I've said this many times, is is my really my only serious regret when I look back at my time underground um, is the only thing I would have definitively done differently in terms of major decisions I made is I wouldn't have had children with us underground. Um, I was in Colombia, Vietnam. There's any, you know, you look historically at resistance movements, and um, and some of them, you know, have gone on for decades, and some of them have been huge. And in those kinds of situations, uh, there was 
you know, a component part of this movement, this resistance, in which you could have a family. The children could, you could have liberated areas. You had an extensive network of, that you could fall back on, that you could rely on. We didn't have that when we were underground. So I would not, uh, I don't recommend <laughs> having children underground, which is, I guess, a tough thing to say. Or even even if you you know, it, it, it's like it goes back to decisions I had to make when I was underground involved really serious matters, and I didn't make those decisions based on emotion. If I had, I wouldn't last. It wouldn't last. You can have emotions as as part of it, but it's got to be subsumed to your more rationalistic approach to things, and. I made a decision when my partner was pregnant, well, we'll have this kid on the ground. That was an emotional decision. You know, I saw the baby born, didn't want to part with her. But when I saw the uh, the, the dangers unfold, particularly in later years, I realized, like, whoa, you know, we have no backup. We have no network to depend on. You know, we're really vulnerable. And if something happens, both parents are here, you know, it's going to be a really nightmare situation. I think, I, I think you know, it's not like we're living in a time when there's a big underground movement in this country, but it's, that's an issue that, that that, you know, based on time, place, and conditions, but time, place, and conditions that existed in those 10 years I was on the ground didn't warrant having kids there. That said, once we were captured, my first concern was we had a lot of concerns right away because they were kicking the out of us and we were looking at, you know, spending the rest of our life in prison and all the rest of it. My first concern was my kids. And because we had no network per se, we did fall back on family, but our families didn't have much re- in the way of resources and, and and funds. And so, and we're talking about in our situation, there were um, three couples with nine kids, all young kids, all all under twelve, and. Um, then, once you're imprisoned and you're separated from your children, then you join. <laughs> you joined at the hip with the parents, the the children and the parents uh, who are incarcerated and their family on the street of all these millions of people that we have imprisoned in this country, and the issues that we were confronted with. Are not weren't so different as what people uh, who are incarcerated in this country confront every day in their children, every day. And in our situation, for the first two and a half, three years, my partner and I were both in prison. So the, our three kids 
lost both their parents during that time. It's bad enough when you have one parent in prison, but to have both is really tough. So then, you know, and as I told you uh, earlier, you know, I was in some extreme isolation conditions. So, you know, for years and years, I, I watched my three young daughters grow up on the other side of a plexiglass wall where we couldn't touch. We had to talk on the phone to see this. Um, that's the kind of barrier that any parent children has to deal with in terms of trying to survive the incarceration of one of both parents in both a physical, mental, and spiritual way to try and um, maintain those family ties and to try and maintain those relationships. Because everything in this gulag, in this American prison system, is designed to destroy the family. Everything about it, from visiting rooms to, you know, tons of rules and regulations to, like, the geography of this gulag, where you're 2,000 miles away from your family. Or you're doing time within a state like New York, which is, you know, the majority of prisons in New York State prison are from the five boroughs in New York City, but where are those prisons located? Hundreds and hundreds of miles in upstate New York. So that, so, you know, looking at in my case long-term imprisonment and being extremely isolated. When I was at Marion, when I first got to Marion, we we got one ten-minute call a month. I got three kids. I have a mother. I have a brother. You know, and I get one ten-minute call a month. Uh, that's not that's not conducive to maintaining a relationship with three three young children. And, and when we can raise the money from supporters that allows those children to travel, as they say, out to a thousand miles out to Marion to visit, they can't even touch you. They're going to touch you on another phone, on the other side of the glass. And and um, so I think I I you know the political prisoners, in a sense of, I think, family. And maintaining family relationships and all the challenges and barriers. Uh, like I said, it's a lot like what other prisoners um, have have to go through as well. And I think it's, there's a, um, I think there's a tendency with this issue and, and sometimes with other issues to, to say, well, if, if, if you are a political prisoner, you know, uh, you know, you struggled against against apartheid, or you struggled for Puerto Rican independence. You went to jail for your principles. Your principles were the bedrock on why you went to prison. You didn't do anything for personal gain or profit. You, you know, there's a tendency to think, well, that's enough to enlighten any kid. Any kid's going to see that and say, hey, 
my dad fought, fought for Puerto Rican independence. In some cases, that's gonna that will be enough, especially if you have the kind of you know a political family <laughs> that's that's steeped in that history of whatever you're in prison for. Um, but that's a gro- gross oversimplification in terms of trying to apply that to everybody. I know a lot of p- political prisoners and former political prisoners. All you know, most of them have had problems of one kind or another with their, uh, you know, difficulties in the relationship with their children at various stages uh, growing up. But rather than emphasize my problems, which still vary from one year to another and, and exist now to one degree, just like they existed years ago, I think I think that the, the common issue that applies to anybody that's in prison who has children it applies to all of us because the prison system it, it, it just it's part of the it's part of grinding you down it's part of like stripping you of your humanity you know attacking your senses all five what you can see what you can touch what you can hear i also think that those who suffer the most in this, I mean, I, I've seen, I've seen men cry that after you know, a visit with their children they couldn't touch. Uh, but those who cry the most, and what we're talking about here, dealing with the, the irrational barriers, the prison sets up between you know, to separate and destroy families, those who suffer most. And this of the children. Sometimes when they're real young, they don't understand. When they start to get old enough and they start to understand, they feel like they've been abandoned. And it doesn't necessarily make any difference what you're in prison for. You're not there. You're in a cage in a box somewhere. You know? And, you know, ultimately with my, my children, who are now grown and have children of their own, was like, I made a decision, but the decision impacted them. My decision was political. I wanted to go out and militantly shove it up apartheid, and I did everything I could to make that happen. And I'm not sorry I did. But that decision has a lot of consequences. One, I spent 20 years in prison for it. Number two, I still got two co-defendants in prison for these type of actions. But the other thing is the family suffers, children suffer. It could be a lot better, and it should be a lot better in terms of what we do for families and children. One of the things I'm working on with Impact right now is a fair chance to ban the box bill. I mean, this is getting a little bit away from this, but think about it. Anybody that's coming out of prison that had kids, you need a job. If you want to rebuild your family, if you want to rebuild your relationship, or continue it if, uh, with your children. I mean, you've got to be able to make a living. You need a job. And right now, there are barriers against employment for the formerly incarcerated. What we're trying to do is simply r- remove one of those barriers or lower it through this band of boxing that we're doing in Maine. Recently, the, the Maine Children's Alliance came out and supported our, our effort to ban the box here, you know, lower job discrimination and barriers against those 
formerly incarcerated. There was a study that was done here over a two-year period in Maine a few years ago that said that 8% of Maine's children, these are minor children, had at least one parent who was incarcerated during their childhood. Why do they support Bandit Box? Because they support families, and they realize that you know employment discrimination is a against the formerly incarcerated is a serious barrier to reunification of families. So this is a small step, but I'm saying, well, you know, it's a, it's a it's a small step for a big problem. I don't know if you're aware of it, but statistically goes along with that one in Maine. You know, Maine is is uh, I said eight percent of Maine's Maine children. That's a little above. It's the highest in New England, a little above the national average. But when you extrapolate that, in this research I looked at, 2.7 million minor children in this country have one of both parents in prison as we speak. So that's a lot of kids that we're talking about trying to keep the family together as healthily as possible. But there are all these collateral issues, too, that go with it. This is really a challenge. To me, it's like we're also fighting this thing in Maine where, you know, we got two county jails that switch to video visitation only visits. So now they they don't have any in-person visits at all. And we're trying to roll that back. We're trying to make it basically a law in Maine or work out informally that you can't do that in Maine. You can have a hybrid system. You can offer, offer video visitation to supplement in-person visits. But you can't have only video visitation. You put somebody in jail. This is pre-trial. You haven't even been convicted for the most part, unless they're on probation violation. Not only is the prisoner vulnerable, but that child is vulnerable as well. And the child can't even come in and see their father or mother. Now they're going to sit in front of a screen, like a computer screen, in the lobby of a facility and do that. That's that's the wrong direction. Entirely wrong direction. You can hear more from Ray in last week's episode of KiteLine, which is available on our website and on the Channel Zero network. On our website, we also have a copy of his moving piece called Family Values, which was written in 1993 about these experiences. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-269. 2512, or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.